everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have the retired judge with Doris Cordell. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderfully, David. Thank you so much uh, for allowing me to be in conversation with you. Sure. Um, so just by way of introduction, can you briefly give us a little bit about your, uh, background and how you ended up, uh, becoming a judge? I'd be glad to do that. Um, I, let me start kind of at the end. I was a superior court judge, a trial court judge in Santa Clara County, California for nearly 20 years. Uh, and during that time on the bench, I presided over all manner of cases. I write about my time on the bench in my recently published book, Her Honor. Um, and before that, uh, let me then go to the very beginning. I grew up on the East Coast outside of Philadelphia. And uh, my grandmothers, both of whom uh, lived on the main line, who had come up in the Great Migration, um, shortly, this was really during the Depression, uh, they were the help. They worked for wealthy white families in uh, suburbs just outside of Philadelphia. My parents uh, raised my two sisters and I, I'm a middle, uh, in Ardmore, Pennsylvania. Again, this is a suburb of just outside of Philadelphia. And my parents ran a dry, dry cleaning business in the Black community in which I lived, um, and while I lived in the Black community, I went to school uh, at predominantly white public schools just because of where the school district lines were drawn. So growing up, I lived in two different worlds. I go to school in the white world and come home and uh, live my life in the Black world, which is not uncommon for folks like me who um, grow up in these kinds of communities. Uh, so my parents did not have the opportunity to go to college, but they made sure that my two sisters and I did. I attended college at Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio. I started as a Spanish major. I lived in Guanajuato, Mexico for a bit, and then I changed my major to uh, drama and speech and theater. Um, after that, I decided to apply to law schools. I was admitted to one, only one, and that was to Stanford. So I came west for the very first time, and this would been in the early 1970s, to attend Stanford Law School. At the time, I had a really big Afro. I was the only African-American woman in my law school class. And there were a handful of black and brown students in my class. Um, and at the time I went to Stanford, there were no uh, 
professors of color and there were no female professors. This was a white male dominated faculty. And that changed before I graduated. There came to be one female faculty person um, and named Barbara Babcock, who ended up uh, being one of my mentors and dear friends. She died uh, last year. After law school, I was unable to get a job at any of these corporate law firms. I, as I said, had a big Afro and they weren't about to hire a black woman. This again is the mid 1970s. So I opened my own law practice right out of the box in East Palo Alto. East Palo Alto is literally across the freeway from Stanford and from wealthy Palo Alto. East Palo Alto was predominantly a community of color, black and brown people at the time. It is, it is changing. There had never been a lawyer in East Palo Alto, so I became the first and only lawyer in private practice there. Um, and after that, I was offered a position as an assistant dean at Stanford Law School to address the dearth of students, of black and brown students at the law school, which I did. I created a, an admissions program um, and aggressively sought out black and brown applicants and recruited as many as I could to attend Stanford Law School. Uh, and then it was during my time as an assistant dean that I became interested in perhaps going on the bench. Uh, during that time, I practiced law. I kept practicing law even as assistant dean. And I write in the book, in the first chapter of the book called Bitten by the Judge Bug, how I got interested in becoming a judge. At the time, I was there was no one in my family who had ever gone into the law. And when I practiced law, there weren't very many, maybe just a handful of judges of color. And I don't remember ever seeing any uh, women of color on the bench at the time. So I didn't have these role models and yet something happened and I'll kind of leave it as a teaser unless you want to talk about it, that um, got me very interested in wanting to apply to become a judge. And that's when I was appointed by Jerry Brown in 1982. I was the first African-American female judge in all of Northern California. And that began my judicial journey. And I guess, you know, as a way of follow up here, you know, I mean, what was that experience like being a woman of color, becoming a judge in a system that was, as you described, uh, almost totally white and male? I encountered, and this will be of no surprise to you or anyone, I encountered gender and racial bias from um, some of my colleagues. As you've noted, they were in the main white males. And for example, um, and also from attorneys. So I recall an incident where I was presiding over a case and I had to call the attorneys to the bench and I, I was a newbie. And uh, both of the lawyers were white males. And, and when I turned to one of the lawyers to ask him to further explain whatever point he was trying to make, he started off by saying, well, honey, and I just stopped and had to just excuse me, that kind of a thing, and had to uh, give him a piece of my mind. And he, he had no clue. He absolutely did not realize that he had so offended me. Uh, so there, there it's what I encountered was not, it's probably not shocking to anybody. 
Um, and I got it when I was practicing law, always being mistaken for a defendant rather than uh, an attorney. And I was condescended to by the judges before whom I appeared. Uh, and then uh, my colleagues, just many of them were good old boys who just did not want to see me enter the club. Uh, so that I was snubbed. Um, I know one of the judges always called me girly. Um, he just couldn't even address me by my name. So um, these were what I call macroaggressions because I believe uh, with regard to racism and sexism and all of the isms, there's no such thing as micro anything. Everything's macro because of the way it impacts our lives. Uh, so um, I'm no different, I think, from just about anyone of color or, um, of, or women who've entered professions where there have heretofore been very few of us. That's what we have to deal with, and we deal with it, and we prevail, we persist, and we open the door for others to come. And, and just to give people context, I mean, what year are we talking about? Like, when did this start? Well, the this, first of all, started when I practiced law, where I was encountering the racism and the sexism. And that was from the time I finished law school. We're talking the mid-1970s. Uh, when I entered the bench, it was the early 1980s, 1982, when I was appointed. So we're talking a 20-year period, 1982 to the time I left, which was in 2001. Things got better in terms of there being more people who looked like me on the bench as the years went on. So in the early, late 1990s, early 2000s, there were more people who looked like me. I wasn't the only one. That is not to say that the sexism and the racism all of a sudden disappeared, but there were more people. And I think that looked like me. And I think because of that, um, the instances of these kinds of biases perhaps diminished a bit. Yeah, and I guess where I'm going with this, and I just like to put this into perspective, this is like recent, like this is, you know, I was born in the early 70s. So, so this is all within my lifetime that, that you're encountering this. This isn't like some far off time period, um, you know, and I, I just, you know, I mean, I started college in the early 90s. So so we're talking about a time when I was in college, you know, and I, I went to college in California. Um, there, there definitely weren't a lot of people of color at Cal Poly where I went to undergraduate school. Um, there were uh, a fair number of women, um, but, you know, it just, you know, it, it is really shocking looking back just how backward the world has been. Well, and this, I, I don't disagree with anything you've said, but if we were to bring it up to the present, to today, uh, there's this other bias that we haven't talked about and maybe we'll, we'll get to it, but I'm just gonna to raise it with you. And that is what's happening now in the courts where judges who are presiding over cases where there are black and brown defendants and the kind of bias that is coming into play when these judges deal with these defendants. I write about this in the book. There's a chapter in the book called Bad Judges. And I talk about bad judges, where their behavior is just egregious. But I also talk about what about judges who are well-intentioned, but are still engaging in 
for example, racial bias or sexism or homophobia, even though they're well-intentioned. And that gets to this, this whole issue that I write about in the book about studies that have been done that talk about when judges have the option of using their discretion, how do they use it? And how do these biases that we all harbor, that we all have, how do they come into play? And it's really um, shocking and upsetting because I note in the book the various studies that have been done of these judges. And um, it's very widespread and I think of a very serious concern. Yeah, and I'm glad you raised that. I mean, we could probably talk all day about this because, you know, I've spent uh, probably the last 15 years, uh, you know, in courtrooms watching uh, trials, um, watching judges interact, um, and and I see it all the time. I also see, you know, it's not just judges, you know, um, you know, it's prosecutors and sometimes even defense attorneys. Uh, um, and, you know, I, I mean, and it's subtle things. Like I, like one of the most appalling things I saw when I first started was, um, you know, you'd have all these, um, in the county I was, you would have the in custody people um, basically chained together and they'd be marched through the courthouse um, because they didn't have the space uh, to, to do it in the back. Um, and then they'd be all marched in and they'd sit in the jury box chained together. And then you would listen to, um, usually it was attorneys and courts uh, talking about, oh, I'm going fishing this weekend and I'm going on vacation. And, and, you know, they're just talking and talking and talking. And you're like, these people are like in custody and they're probably not going to get out for some time. And here you are talking about your vacation. I know that's not like the most egregious thing in the world, but I was always really offended by that. Yeah, it's about an insensitivity to everyone who is in the courtroom. and. Um, I, if you have court personnel, if you have a judge and the judge picks the judge's own staff, that's a clerk and a court reporter and a bailiff, and the judge says, this is how I want you to behave in the courtroom, then that message gets carried forth and they behave accordingly. Um, and these are issues, I, and I, I said, most of those people you just described, they're probably well-intentioned, good people who are not sensitive to the fact that there are individuals there that are locked up, who are very unhappy, and who may be locked up for a long time. Uh, and I think if it were raised to their attention, then perhaps that behavior would change. Um, and, and then the other question I have, and, you know, it's kind of, you know, people are going to look and uh, listen to this and, and basically say, well, you know, you succeeded, you know, um, you know, you, you were able to, despite the fact that you were one of the only women of color at your time, um, you know, get on the bench, um, you know, did you feel like you were busting down doors? Did you feel like, I mean, how would how did this work for you, I guess, is, is what I'm asking. Well, I, I think what you're asking, uh, the way I'm receiving your question is, what, what, what was the motivation? Why, why am I even doing any of this stuff? Uh, and 
it goes back to, for me, how I was raised. My parents were active in, in the Black community. Uh, they taught all of us through, not through preaching, but through their actions, that we stand on the shoulders of others. As I told you earlier, both of my grandmothers were the help. They were treated miserably. Um, and my just my whole family history is such that we want to keep moving forward and at the same time be mindful that what we're doing is not just for the people immediately, as far as judging is concerned, immediately in the courtroom, but opening doors, creating a pipeline so that others can come in. It is so important, as I note in the book, that we have a judiciary that looks like the community. And why? Why? And some people may say, well, why is that important? Because why? Because you're a black judge and you're going to be softer on uh, black defendants? No, that's not it at all. Uh, what it is, is that we judges are human beings. We come in from all kinds of different backgrounds and you want people like that on the bench so that we, so that when for example, black and brown defendants come in your court, you don't immediately stereotype them because that's your view because you've never interacted with or had any kind of a experience with folks who don't look like you. So it's very important that we have that kind of representational diversity on the courts. We're getting there. We still have a long way to go throughout this country. And I'm really mostly focused on, and the book is entirely focused on, trial court judges. There are almost 40,000 trial court judges in the United States. And each year, 80 million new cases are filed in trial courts around the country. And this is where what I call the people's courts. These are where people who come into the legal system first engage with black-robed individuals sitting up high on a bench. And it's so important that those people coming in feel that they can trust the system. And it's very hard to trust the system when the people running it don't look like you and don't have any experiences like you. So what is the book about? The book is part memoir about my nearly 20 years on the bench and it's part primer, primer about our legal system. And so I put it together, I call it a, it's a new genre. I call it a primoir, primer and memoir. Uh, and it's no judge has ever written a book like this, ever. Uh, I have done my research and looked at all the books judges have written, and they're basically, sometimes they're more like textbooks, or they are expounding on some legal principles, uh, but they don't dig deep and talk about what it is like to sit on the bench, to be a trial court judge, and to have to make decisions all day long five days a week, what it's like to look at defendants coming into your courtroom, and that's just criminal cases, and make decisions and, and try to do the right thing. What it is like to preside over, as I did, adoptions and name changes and in probate court where people are fighting over the spoils of dead people, to preside over divorces and in family court and juvenile court. So I write about all of these things. And at the same time, I talk about problems within the system. And please know, I didn't write about uh, me in the sense that, oh, I did everything right. No, I'm very forthcoming and about decisions I made and um, about sometimes how I regretted systems that I, uh, decisions that I made. And I also wrote about fixes. There's a chapter in the book called The Fix where I say, look, there are things all of us can do to make this legal system 
better. And that's why this is not a book of complaints. It's a book to educate people. I hopefully entertain people because I give a lot of war stories in here. And I use actual names of people in these hearings because these were public hearings. And it's also the purpose is to energize people, all of us. This isn't written just for legal people. This is written for everybody uh, to energize people to make the system do better. For example, I don't call the criminal uh, system, people call it a criminal justice system. I don't call it that. It's a criminal legal system. We're not there at the point where we can call it a justice system. Justice is not there. It's a work in progress. What do you see as the biggest problem in the criminal legal system? There, first of all, that's a hard one to answer because there's no biggest one. There are right. there are problems in the system and in the criminal legal system. Uh, and so I, I focus on a number of them, but one I can talk to you about is, for example, how we select juries. There's a chapter in the book called Thank You for Your Service. This is all about juries. And part of that, I take you through an actual jury trial over which I presided, an actual trial. And I talk, and it's by sections. And one section I talk about is jury selection. And part of jury selection involves peremptory challenges. And I have a, a, I take issue with that part of jury selection. And peremptory challenges, for those who don't know, are basically allow each side, and we're just, let's just talk about criminal cases because peremptories are also used in civil cases where people are suing each other. But in criminal cases, each side, the prosecutor and the defense, are allowed to challenge jurors without giving any reason. By challenge meeting, say, I think and excuse juror number three and not give a reason. So in all the states, peremptory challenges are allowed. Each side gets so many where you don't have to give a reason. Uh, in California, for example, for if you're, you're being tried and it's a felony, each side gets 10 peremptory challenges. Now, the other kind of challenges are challenged for cause, meaning you're questioning a juror this is during what's called voir dire, jury selection. And the juror says, well, I know that defendant and that defendant is a terrible person and I couldn't be fair. Okay, you're out because that's for cause. That's the reason right there. But peremptories, you don't have to give a reason. You just say, "I'm going," and you use up your 10 and the other side can use up the 10 or not. My problem with peremptory challenges is that, is the, that peremptory challenges are frequently used to remove jurors of color, potential jurors of color. Uh, and I give examples in the book about how, and it's usually prosecutors who do this, who where a defendant is black or defendant is brown, they don't want black jurors or brown jurors because prosecutors thinking is that, well, they're going to sympathize with the defendant, let's get them out. And the more we can whitewash the jury, the better. That's the thinking of prosecutors who use peremptory challenges uh, to remove people of color. So that's a problem. It's a serious problem. The Supreme Court has addressed it and said, okay, we know it's a problem. So here's what you do. If you, lawyer, think that a peremptory challenge was used to remove someone because, for example, of race, then you can raise it and say, I think that juror was removed because of race. 
And then the Supreme Court has said the prosecutor has to give a quote unquote race neutral explanation for why that juror was excused with a peremptory challenge. So what do they what do prosecutors do? They come up with race neutral explanations. And then it's up to the trial judge to decide whether or not that race neutral explanation is plausible. And what do trial judges do? They just rubber stamp. They just rubber stamp these decisions by or these explanations given by prosecutors. And that's a serious problem. I write about that in the book and I give examples. And one quick one, um, a prosecutor, this is from the book, struck two prospective black jurors um, explaining this, quote, those are the only two people on the jury with facial hair. I don't like the way they looked. The trial judge found the explanation to be race neutral. It's absurd. It's ridiculous. And it's a problem. Thurgood Marshall, when he was on the court, when this a case came up before them called the Batson case, which talked about peremptories, he, he said, Thurgood Marshall said, this is not what you're proposing, Supreme Court, is not going to solve the problem. Uh, trial judges have are no better positioned than anybody else to determine whether or not the motivation for the peremptory challenge was racially motivated. And, and I believe Thurgood Marshall was right. Yes. And so California has recently passed uh, the Racial Justice Act, um, which in part um, could address some of that or at least uh, uh, be an improvement over Batson. I don't know if you have enough experience or have seen enough to know if if that's making a difference yet. So it, that's such a good question. And in 2020, California, the first state in the country, has this Racial Justice Act. And the purpose of it is to weed out racism in our criminal legal system. That's the whole purpose. And one of the areas that the Racial Justice Act focuses on is peremptory challenges. And what's different about this act is that it says to the trial judge, it's your burden. You don't rubber stamp this. It's your burden to dig deep, find out what's the real reason for the peremptory challenge. And in addition, you trial judge, if you determine that that race neutral response was not a valid one, you have remedies, use them. Remedies such as bring that wrongfully excused juror back or um, st starting the trial over, or there are different kinds of remedies that are in the act. So this is the first time judges are being told, you can't just sit back and rubber stamp these things. Now, your question, David, was, okay, so how's that working out? We don't know because it's just come into law and we don't know. And I hope that there are studies going on to find out if judges are in fact abiding by this act. Are they ignoring it or are they really doing something about it? We don't know yet. And I'm anxious to see what the research will show. As am I. And I'm also anxious to see if uh, the legislature uh, is going to pass kind of a follow-up, which will allow, um, you know, appellate courts to uh, do lookbacks and determine whether or not um, violations occurred in the past. Absolutely. I agree with you. Um, so you lay out some suggestions for fixing the criminal legal system. And obviously, you know, uh, we don't need to exhaustively, um, you know, go through it since people need to read the book uh, to get the answer. But 
but maybe give a couple of examples. Sure. Uh, let's just talk about juveniles, if we could. Juvenile um, def defendants who come into court, into juvenile court. Now, uh, in juvenile court, there are no juries. And it's the judge who is the fact finder and also the decision maker, maker as to whether or not this juvenile committed the offense with which the juvenile is charged. And it has to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. So I make an argument that their juveniles should have the right to have jury trials. Well, the issue of jury trials for juveniles has come before the US Supreme Court. And it came before the court in about 1970. I write about it in the book. There's a chapter called Making a Murderer, where I talk about a juvenile case over which I presided. And part of that, that chapter, I talk about this issue of why we don't have jury trials uh, in juvenile court. Well, we don't have it because the Supreme Court says it's just not required. Now, as if you're an adult, a jury trial is just mandated. You have an absolute right to have a jury trial, but as a juvenile, you do not. And the Supreme Court, when it made this decision, basically said, look, uh, we're not going to treat juveniles' trials um, with and have jury trials. We're not going to allow it because it'll make them too much like adult trials. And, and juvenile trials, and I, I'm quoting a little bit from the court, a jury trial would make juvenile proceedings fully adversary and destroy the idealistic prospect of an intimate, informal, protective proceeding. That's just one of the reasons they give. As I write in the book, that's all magical thinking because I have presided in juvenile court and there are, these are not intimate, informal, protective proceedings at all. They resemble adult tri trials. They, juveniles are locked up many times uh, as adults are. Uh, juveniles are uh, subjected to, we have to have the rules of evidence apply in juvenile trials, just like in adult trials. And there are so many similarities. And the one thing, the other thing I point out in the book, the six Supreme Court justices who decided this case that said juveniles shouldn't have the right to jury trials, none of them had ever practiced juvenile law or had ever presided over a juvenile court trial. They did, basically, they didn't know what they were talking about. So this means, this decision means, no, they're not mandated, but it doesn't mean that the states themselves cannot have, they're free to require jury trials for juveniles under their own state constitutions and legislatures. And today, there is a growing trend among the states to do that. 18 states today either allow or require jury trials for juveniles. And my view is that every state should allow them and that the U.S. Supreme Court should revisit its Supreme Court case that said that juveniles don't have that right. You um, called it magical thinking. I, I, I I think I had a different term come to mind. What's yours? What's yours? Uh, it, it begins with a B. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Two syllables. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, wow. So I, I want to, um, we're, we're almost out of time, but I, no, I, I want to, we have much more to talk about. I, I know. <laughs> and, and I will have to bring you back uh, because I could talk to you all day about this stuff. Um, but I did want to talk briefly uh, about your experience with the San Francisco uh, Innocence Commission. Um, and 
um, you know, I know a lot of people on that body. And one of the interesting things I thought of when I saw that you were appointed, it, it seemed like a strange place for a retired judge to be appointed. Um, and so how did you come about doing that? Well, I was asked to be on the commission when Chesa Bodine was the district attorney, because this was his creation. And this Innocence Commission is based in the DA's office, except we're not, we're independent, but at the same time, it was created by the DA's office. And it only consists of a handful of members, and they wanted a retired judge to be on this commission. Why? Well, I've presided over umpteen criminal jury trials, so the job of the Innocence Commission is to review what happened in trials where defendants convicted out of superior courts in San, in San Francisco are claiming that they did not have fair trials or for wrongfully convicted. So I'm just one of, I believe there are five members, or at least there were six at the time that Chesa created it. Uh, so I, you asked me why do it? Because I believe that even though I retired from the bench and even though I wrote a book, I believe that um, my work and retired judges have much to offer and much to give. Uh, our time on the Innocence Commission, it's pro bono. Uh, we're not paid for any of this. And we spend hours reviewing trial transcripts and police reports and individual cases. Um, so the future of the Innocence Commission, I'm not clear because there is now another district attorney there. Uh, the district attorney has already fired one of the members of the commission, didn't fire her from the commission, but fired her from the DA's office. Um, Ar Arcelia Hurtado, she was on the commission as a member of the DA's office. And she, however, has been fired by the current uh, district attorney. So we're down a person. And I don't know as of yet whether or not, uh, or when, whether or not Arcelia will be replaced. Um, so right now we're just kind of in a hold pattern to see where we go. I think that the creation of the Innocence Commission was a terrific thing. We have uh, recommended the exoneration of one person, Joaquin Syria, and he is now out of prison after serving decades for uh, a murder that he did not commit. So he is out. And um, there is another case that we're recommending. We've recommended a resentencing for that person. And the person was resentenced, but not did the judge did not follow our recommendation. Um, so we'll see what happens on it. It's important. And I do hope that the public will support the Innocence Commission's work. It, it just is important. Every county, every DA's office, in my view, should have one of these. And I hope that San Francisco will continue. And as long as it continues, I'll continue to serve. Um, do you feel like you can talk about either of those cases? Um, sure, I can talk about, sure, Joaquin Syria and the other was Mr. Louvier. Yeah. And that case was just before a judge who resentenced him. So I'm, I, will, I can speak about them as an individual. I don't speak right now on behalf of the Innocence Commission. I'm not the, the spokesperson. But right. I, I don't know what else I can tell you other than that we spent, oh, I forget how many, a year and a half, two years, uh, reviewing the Joaquin Syria case. Well, what, like, when you looked at that, what convinced you that he didn't do it? Well, that, there were many, there were many things. And right. um, so I, I'm not going to go into detail on all of it, but 
what when we made our recommendation, it went right to the district attorney's office. That's all we can do is make recommendations. And then it was up to the district attorney at that time, Chesa Bodine, to uh, look at everything that we had turned over. And also, it's important not to forget that Joaquin Syria had his own defense attorneys. He had appellate attorneys who were with the Innocence Project of Northern California. That's how we even became aware of the case. So there was the Innocence Project of Northern California. Then you have the Innocence Commission, all bringing this information forward. Uh, let's just say that we believe the information that we were able to gather, the evidence that we gathered, was such that it demonstrated clearly to us, unanimously, uh, within the commission, that he had been, he was not the person who committed the murder. This was not the person, and that he should have been, uh, not have been convicted, shouldn't have even, in our view, have even been uh, tried in this case. And that's why, thank goodness, finally he is out. And then the commission was a little bit more split on uh, the Louvier, as I understand it, whether or not he actually did it or if he was just excessively punished. Well, there were issues. Yes, the commission was not unanimous in saying he was wrongfully convicted, uh, but there was a concern that uh, perhaps his he was did not get a fair trial. And if you don't get a fair trial, one option is for the court to bring it back and to resentence the person. And that was basically our, the majority of the Innocence Commission said that he should be resentenced. He was in fact resentenced, but um, the district attorney's office was not there. Let's just say they absented themselves. So the judge went ahead and did a resentencing, but it was not the resentencing that we were looking at. He got basically more time than we thought he should have gotten in the resentencing, but at least he has been resentenced. But I feel like this is kind of a really important point to illustrate that, you know, this isn't like a group of defense attorneys that is trying to rubber stamp uh, an exoneration. You guys actually did a lot of work um, and, and you were not, uh, when you guys didn't agree, you didn't take uh, the approach of exoneration. I feel like it's really important to kind of tease that out a little uh, so that people can understand that, you know, when when, when you hear somebody's exonerated, it, it's because the evidence is overwhelming that they didn't do it. That That is exactly right. And people who know me know that I am nobody's rubber stamp. That is not my track record. I've never operated like that. So on this commission, if people can go to the I don't know if the website is still up. Um, um, I don't know if the current DA has left it up. But basically, you have a law professor. Um, we have a psychiatrist. We have a public defender. There was there's a slot for a district attorney, and then a retired judge. All folks. I I by the way, when I came on this commission, and to this day, I, I've never met uh, Chesa Bodine. I had never met him. He held a press conference when Joaquin Syria was um, released, and um, that's the first time I was even in the same room with Chesa Boudin. Uh, so we're not, you're, you're correct. It's so important for people to understand this, that we are individuals from various different backgrounds who don't rubber stamp anybody or anything, 
and who document our work. Our work is thoroughly, thoroughly vetted and documented and then handed over to the district attorney. And then it's up to the district attorney to do what uh, the district attorney desires. All right. So how can people get a hold of your book? Oh, many ways. One is to go to my website, which is www.judgecordell.com. And you'll see a pull down that says Her Honor. It says author and then Her Honor. You can click it there. Uh, you can get it. I, I'm not a huge fan of Amazon, but you can get it on Amazon. It's now out, of, out in paper book and paperback, excuse me. And it's at local bookstores. And if you are in uh, California, you can get it at, for example, at Marcus Books. It's the oldest independent Black-owned bookstore in the United States, now going on 62 years and counting. And I went there and signed a bunch of books there at Marcus Books, and they're right online. You can order it and have the book, the signed book delivered. And it's at local bookstores as well, including Barnes and Noble, and then um, just all around. And, and I really hope that people will read it. I want everybody to understand the system because unless, until you understand the legal system, you can't really push to change it and to make it better. You have to understand it first and then push for policy changes. And I guarantee you, once you have read Her Honor, you will have a thorough understanding of our legal system. And I hope then be energized to make it better. All right. Well, I want to thank you for coming on our show and sharing your experience. Like I said uh, a few minutes ago, I could probably talk to you all day about this stuff. And it seems like you have the passion to do the same. Uh, so thanks so much. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And thank you so much. I greatly appreciate the work that you do on this podcast. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Help us hold the injustice system accountable by spreading the word about everyday injustices. You can support our cause by sharing or reviewing this podcast wherever you find podcasts. If you would like to support us in other ways, the Davis Vanguard will be hosting our annual fundraising gala in Sacramento on October 13th. You can find out more information by subscribing to our email list or find us on social media. Thank you and have a good day. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.